of interlude for us between the, the exposition of Romans, which we finished uh, the first week in June, and uh, on until um, August when we, be- when we began our exposition of Proverbs. We're going to focus mostly on Proverbs 1 through 9, and then after that we're going to trickle at some of the Proverbs after that. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to that. And in July, um, I'm going to be on vacation. We're going to have four guys from our congregation preach. I'm looking greatly forward to all of them opening the word. Um, but we have taken the, the theme of our, of our surprising aversions from the work of Jonathan Edwards, which um, was entitled this. It says, A faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire in a letter to the Reverend Dr. Coleman of Boston. Now, that letter is about the size of a, of a small book, but in that letter, he, uh, he wrote down of just what he witnessed during the days of the Great Awakening, when, when many people in our land were being converted to Christ. And this work is often known as a, a narrative of surprising conversions. And thus, our theme, this four-week series, uh, about surprising conversions. And in section two of Edward's letter, he focuses attention upon the, the diverse ways in which people come to Christ. Regarding the experiences of those who are converted, he says this, There is a vast variety of experiences, perhaps as manifold as the subjects of the operation. In, in other words, right, when God saves a soul, he does it in a, a unique way. Nobody's circumstances are exactly the same. They're all converted differently. Some are converted to Christ when they're young, and, and some to Christ when they're old. Some trust, trust Jesus the first time they hear the gospel. And some, it takes months and, and even years of hearing the gospel over and over again before they, they bow the knee to Jesus. Some are converted through the, the witnessing of God's work in the life of other people and others by, by reading the Bible. Perhaps some other Christian influence in their lives. Some are, are brought to repentance through fear of judgment. And others are brought to repentance through the, the grace of Christ. Well, in here, the, the letter that Jonathan Edwards wrote to Dr. Coleman, he, he spells out some of the differences in his day. He said, there's a vast difference, as observed, in the degree also in the particular manner of the person's experiences. Some have grace working more sensibly in one way, others in another. Some speak more fully of a conviction of the justice of God in their condemnation. Others more of their consenting in the way of salvation of Christ, and some by more actings of love to God and Christ. There's an endless variety in the particular matter and circumstances in which persons are wrought on. And an opportunity of seeing so much will show that God is further from confining himself to a particular method in his work on souls than some imagine. Now, if you pretty complex to, to grab that all, but he says that God has saved us in such different ways, in such wonderful ways. In fact, God is not just one way he saves people. He saves people in as many different ways as there are people. And salvation from, in Christ is far from being a cookie-cutter experience. Circumstances and events surrounding the conversion of his souls is different as there are people on the earth. Which, by the way, by way of application, just... Think about those who would advocate this is the way to present the gospel. There's no one way to present the gospel. People are saved through a variety of different ways. And there's some people who advocate this is the way, this is Jesus' way to do it. Well, God does it all different sorts of ways. There are many different ways to share the gospel. And in section two, 
right? He, he, he takes pains to show how great this variety is. Listen to what he says. He says this. Some are thus convinced of the truth of the gospel in general, that the scriptures are the word of God. Others have their minds more especially fixed on some great doctrine of the gospel, some particular truths that they may be meditating on or reading on. Or, or there's often in the mind of some, maybe some particular text of scripture from the Bible, holding forth some evangelical ground of consolation. Sometimes a multitude of texts, gracious invitations and promises flowing in one after another, filling the soul more and more with comfort and satisfaction. Comfort is first given to some while reading some portion of scripture, but in some it's attended with no particular scripture at all, either in reading or meditation. In other words, God will use his word in his way as he deems necessary. And and sometimes just the Bible in general, sometimes maybe some doctrine, maybe some specific verse, or maybe some specific phrase, or maybe some doctrine. And church history bears this out. Martin Luther was converted uh, when he understood Romans 117, the just shall live by faith. Just that one text of scripture came into his mind, and and he suddenly understood the gospel of how it's by faith that we're made right with God. Spurgeon was converted when he heard a preacher preach from Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And, and that just look unto me and be saved. And that, that was the text that God used in the life of Spurgeon. Or Augustine was converted when he opened his Bible. The, the kids were saying, tole lege, tole lege, take and read. And he just opened his Bible and read to Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that's what Augustine read. And just he was involved in some of those things in his life. And he put on the Lord Jesus Christ and God transformed him. And sometimes the Lord uses obscure texts in the, the salvation of people. R.C. Sproul was converted. By Anyone know what text converted R.C. Sproul? I know we got some Sproul fans out there. Anyone know what text God used? Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3, which reads this. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. (laughs) Sproul heard that text, and God wonderfully changed him. Here's Sproul's testimony. He said, God awakened my soul by considering that passage as I saw myself as a tree falling and rotting and decaying. And that was a description of my life. That's where I was. Nobody had to tell me I was a sinner. I knew that. It was abundantly clear to me. But as I went to my bedroom that night and got on my knees, my experience was one of transcendent forgiveness. And I was overwhelmed by the tender mercy of God, the sweetness of his grace, and the awakening he gave me for my life. From Ecclesiastes 11.3, If a tree falls to the south or the, more, or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Just shows the manifold ways in which God will save sinners. Well, Edwards also talks about the fears of people under the conviction of their sin. Edwards writes how some were calm and hopeful during the time of their conviction of sin, and others, right, were fearful of judgment. They could barely sleep at night, lest, lest they don't wake up and find themselves in a place of everlasting torment. Here's how Edwards puts it. He says, There's a very great variety as to the degree of fear and trouble that persons are exercised with before they attain any comfort, comfortable evidences of pardon and acceptance with God. Some from the beginning are carried on with abundant more encouragement and hope than others. And some have ten times less trouble of mind than others 
in whom yet the issue seems to be the same. Some have had a sense of the displeasure of God and the great danger they were in of damnation that they could not sleep at nights. And many have said that when we've laid down the thoughts of sleeping in such a condition have been frightful to them, and they've scarcely been free from terror while asleep. And they have awakened with fear, heaviness, and distress still abiding on their spirits. In other words, right, when God came to these people, he experienced the great awakening. So many people coming to Christ. Some came with great hope. And others came with great fear before Christ. Nobody's emotions were the same. Dispositions and outlooks on life are all, all, all different. All come to Christ differently. Edwards continues. Commonly, the, the first thing that appears is a conviction of the justice of God in their condemnation. Appearing in a sense of their own exceeding sinfulness and the vileness of all performances. Sometimes disconsolate souls have been revived and brought to rest in God by a sweet sense of his grace and faithfulness in some special invitation or promise. Persons are sometimes brought to the borders of despair and it looks as black as midnight to them a little before the day dawns in their soul. Just, just sometimes, like he's just describing the many of these hundreds of people he saw come to Christ in his days. Regarding the length of time that people were under conviction of sin before trusting in Christ, Edward writes that some were converted quickly while others were under the conviction for months and months. This is how Edwards puts it. He says this, There's nothing a greater difference in different persons than with respect to the time of their being under trouble. Some but for a few days and others for months or years. In some, converting light is like a glorious brightness suddenly shining upon a person all around them. They are in a remarkable manner brought out of darkness into marvelous light. In many others, it has been like the dawning of the day, which at first but a little light appears, and it may be presently hid with a cloud, and then it appears again and shines a little brighter and gradually increases with intervening darkness, till at length breaks forth with more clearly from behind the clouds. The arguments are all the same that they have heard hundreds of times, but the force of the arguments and their conviction by them is altogether new. Right, people have been in church for years, right? They, they've heard the arguments. They, they've heard the, the, the justifying grace of Christ. They've heard how you're justified by faith. They've heard it over and over and over again. And it, it, it's like darkness to them. And suddenly then, over years, it just kind of shines through. Edwards writes, But it seems evident to be the same work, the same habitual change in the heart. It all tends the same way to the same end, it's plainly the same spirit that breathes and acts in various persons. There's an endless variety in the particular manner and circumstances which Christians are wrought in, but it's all the same God, the same work. And so that's, that's what makes these stories of, of conversion really so interesting and helpful to us all. Is it, is it though conversion stories differ, they're all fundamentally the same because it's the author of salvation is the same in all instances. And the means of salvation is always the same. It's, it's coming to repentance and seeing your sin. And then it's faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the results are always the same as well. Genuine and lasting change. The path to repentance and faith that people take is always different. Right? As, as we've seen, our stories of, of surprising conversions. I, I, I've tried to pick different people who've been converted from different genres of Scripture just, just to show differently. Like, first we kicked off uh, King Manasseh. The rebellious ruler, the most wicked of all the kings of Israel. He's an example of a man in the Old Testament who's converted in a surprising way. And then we went to the New Testament and looked at Jesus and the wandering woman at the well. She was an example of a foreigner converted through Jesus in the days of Jesus. And she didn't live a particularly upright life, yet she believed in Jesus. 
So, so we see outwardly sinful people like Manasseh, who is an idol worshiper and a child sacrificer. And, and, and we, see, um, we see the woman at the well. Right? We see her like, um, like not particularly a virtuous woman and outside of, of the people of God. And last week, we looked at not just particular people, but a class of people. These weren't wicked outsiders. These were insiders. These were Jewish priests. <clears throat> they were converted not in the Old Testament times or in the days of Jesus, Right, but after Jesus rose from the dead, and, and, and the whole group right, were, were religious people who rejected Jesus one day and eventually came to embrace him the days after in Jerusalem. And, and despite all their differences, all their conversions are fundamentally the same. Sinful people who saw their sin and believed in a Savior. And seeing the differences in coming to Jesus, right, we're, we're all followed the call follow their steps, but, but really not in the particulars, right? Because when we apply these conversions to ourselves, we don't need to be like these people to be saved. We don't need to be a king and a ruler over everything. We, we don't need to be the woman at the well. We don't need to be the, the priests employed in religious service to be, to be saved. We simply need to follow the pattern, right? Brokenness of sin and crying to God in repentance and trusting our souls to Jesus. Those are the common things of all these conversions. And the particulars just show that it's always different in lots of different ways. This morning, we're looking at the conversion of Paul. And his conversion to us is as surprising as can be. He was one of the most religious people of his day, one of the most zealous opponents of the followers of Jesus, persecuting the church, becoming enemy number one. But he, encountered, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and his life was, was never the same. He became a follower of Jesus and wrote about a fourth of the New Testament. So someone who was so wicked, becoming one who God used mightily to spread his truth. And my message this morning isn't be like Paul. Because none of us would be like Paul. Paul is this prominent Pharisee in, in Israel before he came to Christ. Like the top professor of the land, if you will. Gifted intellectually beyond measure. Had zeal that surpassed all. And yet few would, would ever mesh up, match up to that. And, and we don't have to. But we just see the principles and the... The, at work in the life of Paul and realize that our conversion goes a similar path. Now, regarding the conversion of Paul, I'd argue that his conversion was the most famous of all in the Bible. His story is told in the book of Acts three times. Uh, the actual account of his road to Damascus experience was uh, uh, explained in, in Acts chapter 9. And then he shares his conversion experience to a mob of people in Acts chapter 22. And in chapter 26, he has the opportunity to, to tell his conversion to Agrippa. And all three of these passages were told the exact same thing, how Paul was on the road to Damascus with, uh, with, with papers in hand to, to capture Christians, to bring them bound back to Jerusalem where they would be tried in a religious course, court, found guilty of following Jesus, and then whipped or scourged and maybe imprisoned. And in each of these passages, we hear how, how a light appeared, blinding Saul, and he was on his knees, and a voice came from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Paul asked who was speaking, the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that same phraseology is said in both Acts 9 and in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. All the same. It just struck on his mind about how he's blinded on his knees. Why are you persecuting me? Who am I? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then the details are a little bit different, like when you tell stories, things are, are a little bit different, but meaning they didn't share exactly the same thing, though he fills in a fully consistent story. After that, he was led to Damascus, where, where he prayed and waited for a man named Ananias to come. 
And when, I, when Ananias came, he opened Paul's eyes and told him what God's plan for his life would be, basically to suffer for Christ and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And the story is told three times. Sometimes a little bit of details left out, sometimes more added. But that same basic story, same element, same message. And uh, it's really astonishing, really, when you think about the biggest enemy of the church becoming an ally of the church. And, and so, so just thinking, I'm just thinking about how do we apply Paul to today. Who, who's the greatest enemy of the church today? Like, can you think of anybody who's like the greatest enemy? Maybe our lawmakers who just in our increasingly anti-Christian culture is legislating against morality, abortion on demand for any time, any reason, seeking to silence those who stand up and oppose evil in our land, or maybe even our court system, which is on the brink of making it impossible for us to live lives of religious conviction. I mean, more and more our society is calling us not merely to accept other people in their sin, but more and more we're being called to approve people and their sin. And if we don't approve them, we are wrong and judged in the, in the court. So maybe it's atheistic professors at college or influential writers or, or bloggers who are trying to pull the minds away. A- atheistic writers trying to pull minds away. I don't, I don't know who the, who the identity, the greatest enemy in the church would be. But Paul would be that guy. Paul would be the single guy who's, who's actively against the church. Now, now all these people, like, uh, they're not really against the church. They're just drifting the society away, kind of where the, the church balks with that a little bit. But that guy, God changed from being the greatest enemy of the church to the greatest advocate of the church. So let, let's, let's, just think, let's just think maybe an illustration. Let's just think of our governor. And um, I, I, I don't think he is so against the church. But think about it. last month, he signed expanded abortion rights in Illinois to be some of the most progressive in the nation. Illinois is like on the cutting edge of liberalness with abortion any time for any reason. He, he legalized recreational marijuana in our state this week. On Friday, signed Senate Bill 690, which expands the gambling industry in Illinois, a casino to Rockford. That may supposedly bring some dollars, but it's going to ruin a lot of families. It's going to bring crime to Rockford. None of these things are attacks upon our church, however. Okay, so I don't see our governor as the greatest enemy. But none of these things are particularly helpful to our society today, less, much less to churches. I'm just saying abortion's a moral evil. Marijuana usage is a sin. A casino will bring lives to ruin. But imagine that our governor comes to Christ in a radical way is baptized right there on the rotunda of the state capitol and begins to use his powers of the office to promote the gospel blatantly and forwardly, turning the State of the Union address into a preaching opportunity where he preaches the only hope for the state of Illinois is Jesus Christ, where he allowed only believers in Christ to hold positions of authority in administration so the agenda of the church can be promoted, like actively seeking to focus his attention upon the church or doing all he could to support the work of the church in Illinois. And that, that's a fair comparison about what it would be like if the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was converted, the archenemy of the church, becoming the greatest advocate of the gospel. This conversion is often told three times 
in the book of Acts, three times in the letters. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1. He says this, and I'm just going to read this passage for you so you just sense how how Paul shared his testimony in this letter. He says, Galatians 1, For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that is preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my... uh, beyond many of my own age, among my people. And so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he would set me apart from before I was gone, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia And returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said. And here's what they said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's like... Acts 9 in a, in, a, in a nutshell. The Damascus Road appearance, uh, appearance, right? He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. It's the surprising conversion of the Apostle Paul. He also gave his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to this testimony, verses 3 through 11. For we are the true circumcision who worship By the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more. Here describes the background. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is under the law, found blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Here he is, a persecutor of the church, under the righteousness of the law, found blameless. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. That's what Paul found on the road to Damascus. All this gain, all this zeal, all this knowledge, all this passion, it was all loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. Well, there's there's a third place that his testimony is given. And with what little time we have left this morning, this is where we're going to focus our attention it's not really a long introduction today. It's, it's kind of encapsulating what, what Jonathan Edwards wrote, the conversions of Paul, and now we come to 1 Timothy 1. So you can open your Bibles there. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's on page 991 of the, the Bible in the pew in front of you, the chair in front of you. I'm sorry, pews are gone. <clears throat> the time of a message this morning is a surprising conversion. The surprising conversions. No, it's the surprising conversion I messed up on that slide, of a prominent Pharisee. That is the Apostle Paul. 
I want to read for you 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. And then we're going to work through these verses fairly quickly as we just see Paul and his truth of, of what he's, he's seeking to communicate. Paul writes this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly a, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's testimony. This is a testimony of what God did in his life. And with all testimonies, really personal. Right, did you notice the personal pronouns here in this passage? I and me. In fact, I think 11 times in these six verses, he emphasized himself. This is what his experience was in his conversion process. Listen as I, as I emphasize these pronouns. I'm just going to read this passage again, just showing how personal is his testimony of his conversion. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I in the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And though this is a personal testimony, Paul is far from focusing all the attention upon himself. And in fact, in, in verse 1, he, he gives thanks to God. And in verse 17, he gives great glory to God. In fact, we see my first point from the text this morning is that Paul was thankful. That's, that's just the main point here. Verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. See, when Paul thought of his salvation, he was, he was filled with thanksgiving to God because he knew where he had come from and he knew where God had brought him. Not only had God saved Paul from his sins, but he'd brought him into the ministry to serve him full time as a full time missionary. Over in chapter two and verse seven, right, we, we see what, where God placed him. He said, for this, I was appointed a, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So God appointed him to be an apostle, one, one sent out. 
And he was a preacher and a a teacher to the Gentiles. And he was told this in Acts chapter 9 of of where he was to be sent out. And and Paul was overwhelmed with this thankfulness to God who, who had strengthened him for this very task. And the task of preaching, which is really this message, is, is right there in, <clears throat> in verses 5 and 6. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know what God has brought you from. Right? You know that God has brought you from a place of sin and despair into his glorious kingdom. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you know just what what God has saved you out of and what he saved you for and his grace and his mercy to you. And you will be thankful. If you're not thankful today, I just ask you, are you saved? Do you know the forgiveness of your sins? Because if you don't know the forgiveness of your sins, you may not be thankful. And the main reason, though, why believers are thankful is that they've experienced the mercy of God, which is my second point from the text comes from verses 13 and 14. Really focuses on the mercy of God. Paul writes, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is the core of all salvation stories, as varied as they are. Stories the same, before, during, and after. Well, Paul tells of what he was like, and how God changed him, and how God, how God saved him, and then how God changed him. And that's how it always is. Your, your own testimony, you think about, well, what was I like before I came to Christ? How, how has God changed me? How has he saved me? rather. And then how has he changed me permanently? Like, like how, how, is there a difference in my life? As people say, no change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change. Kind of, God will transform us and give us a heart and passion after that. Before Paul was a follower of Christ, he was a, a blasphemer is what it says there. That is, he spoke untruths about God, bringing God down. Before Paul was a follower of Christ, he was a persecutor. That is one who pursued, it pursued Christians, seeking to do them harm. And before Paul was a follower of Christ, he was an insolent opponent. He inflicted physical harm upon believers in Christ. In Acts chapter 7, we find that Paul was, was even there at the stoning of Stephen, pursuing Christians, gladly approving of the stoning of a, of a Christian. And all that was evident also on the road to Damascus when he's going to capture these Christians. That's what he was before. But then we see the turn in verse 13. This is one of those blessed buts of Scripture. I was this, but God, but God changed me. He said, he said, God was merciful to him. He says, I received mercy. That's how any of us are saved from our sins. The sheer mercy of God, because before the Lord, we deserve nothing. It's only the mercy of God that grants us our forgiveness. And Paul knew and experienced this mercy, and this mercy overflowed is, is what he says. It overflowed, verse 14, in, in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The picture here is this bubbling fountain. They're just bubbling over. You try to suppress it, it's just going to kind of keep, keep coming. The, the grace and love overflowing to Paul on account of his faith. And that's really the testimony of all who come to Christ. Mercy for sins forgiven, right, to, to save us. Forgive us of our sins before the Lord. And then after that, just bubbling over of grace and love, the power 
to live redeemed lives. That's why Paul said in, in verse 12, I thank God who gives me strength, right? strength by his grace, strength by his love. And then in verse 15, we have this trustworthy statement, which I'm calling salvation's principle. Kind of lies, rhymes with thankful and merciful. We have a principle. Um, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here's the, the principle of salvation, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. This, this is the central thought of Paul's thanksgiving. This is the manifestation of God's mercy in his life, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came into the world to save sinners. You read the gospel accounts and you see Jesus coming to save sinners. He saved Matthew and Zacchaeus, despised tax collectors. He saved Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons driven out of her. He was known to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But that's why Jesus came. To save sinners. To save those who had no hope. Right? The Pharisees, like the Apostle Paul, who had it all together. Who knew all the answers. Who, who memorized the scriptures from the youth. Who were righteous. That, he didn't come for righteous people. Right? He, he didn't come for people church who were like, oh, they're righteous in themselves. No, he came for people right, who didn't know of God's righteousness. And when the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at Jesus, he says, why do you eat with these, drink with these tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost in church family. Right? We ought to be bigger than a church. We ought to be like Jesus and be with tax collectors and sinners, those who haven't trusted and hoped in Christ yet. Right? It's, it, it's not the, the well they need a physician, right? The world needs us to penetrate in there to show the, the gospel, the, the glory of, of Christ. And that's what's so surprising about Paul's conversion is that he didn't seem to be lost. He didn't seem to be one of these sinners. He was one of the religious elite. He, he was the head of his class following the ways of God so strongly, as we read in Philippians 3, that he was blameless in the ways of God. So know this. Know that it's not those merely who are outwardly walking in opposition to the ways of God who are sinners. There are plenty of sinners in religious institutions who know all about God, who maybe have an apparent zeal for God, but are zealous about the wrong things, who are trusting in their own righteousness, their own knowledge, their own discerning abilities, knowing nothing of repentance because they've got it all down. And may it not escape all of you at Rock Valley Bible Church, that sinners are found in the church as well. God saved Paul from his religious ways. God had a purpose for Paul's conversion, though. We see it in verse 16. It was that he might be an example. Paul is an example. He says this in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And what Paul is saying here in verse 16 is this. God saved the worst of sinners. He saved me. Therefore, nobody is out of his reach. In other words, right, if God can save the Apostle Paul, who was super religious but super lost, who persecuted the church of God with zeal beyond measure, if God can save the Apostle Paul, then he can save anybody. There's nobody beyond the reach of God. 
In fact, my purpose about preaching these sermons about surprising conversions has really been threefold. First of all, it's an encouragement to your own soul. I mean, hearing stories of conversions of people is just encouraging. It's edifying to know that God does his work in his time and his way. Super encouraging. I I trust you've been encouraged by the story of Manasseh, the woman at the well, the the Jewish priest from last week. But a second purpose is really the future of your own soul. Maybe today finds you apart from the mercy of God. Paul's conversion is an example for you that none of you are beyond the reach of God. If you but repent and believe as Paul did. But a third purpose, not only just the encouragement, not only conviction, maybe if it needs to be there, but also an encouragement to go and spread the gospel beyond us. I mean, there's nobody in your relational world that is outside the reach of God's saving arm. If Paul can save, if God can save the Apostle Paul, then he can save your friend. And so tell your friend that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners according to salvation's principle, which Paul is an example. And point him or her to trust in Jesus. Well, my last point this morning is that God is wonderful. It's a rhymes, right? Example and wonderful. Um, you might say he's to be worshipped. He's... He's awful, like it just awe-inspiring. Just I thought that was wonderful. Like he is, he is such to be wondered at and amazed at that all glory ought to go to him. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's just Paul reflecting upon his own salvations brings him to praise. Which is one of the fruits of, of saving faith. It does bring you to a, a place where you say, God is wonderful. He is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. And as we come to verse 17, how appropriate it is, as we have been focusing upon Jonathan Edwards and um, the surprising conversions that Jonathan Edwards experienced to witness, because when he was converted, Acts, 1 Timothy 1.17 was the verse that God used in his life to open his eyes in a fresh way. And I, I want to end by simply reading again from Jonathan Edwards. This is not in his narrative of surprising conversions, but this is his testimony of his own conversion. Here's what he says. Edwards writes, I had a variety of concerns and exercises about my soul from my childhood. <clears throat> Children, this could be you. Variety of concerns about my soul from when I was a little boy but had two more remarkable seasons of awakening before I met with that change by which I was brought to those new dispositions and that new sense of things that I've had since then. The first was when I was a boy, some years before I went to college. And he went to college young, by the way. He was brilliant. Went to college, I think he was at 14 probably when he went to college. So this may be an early teen. He says, a time of remarkable awakening in my father's congregation. I was then very much affected for many months and concerned about the things of religion and my soul's salvation and was abundant in duties. I used to pray five times a day in secret and to spend much time in religious talk with other boys and used to meet with them and pray together. I experienced, I know not what kind of delight in religion. My mind was engaged in it and and had much self-righteous pleasure. And it was my delight to abound in religious duties. And I, with some of my school classmates, joined together and built a booth in in a swamp in a very retired spot for a place of prayer. I mean, this guy was very zealous, pursuing, praying so many times. And besides, I'd 
particular secret places of my own in the woods where I used to retire by myself and was from time to time much affected. My affections seemed to be lively and easily moved, but I seemed to be in an element when engaged in religious duties. And I'm ready to think that many are deceived with such affections and such a kind of delight as I had then in religion and mistake it for grace. But in the process of time, my convictions and affections wore off. Right? One time I was zealous for God, but then it, then it, then it, it fell off. And I was entirely lost, all those affections and delight, and left off secret prayer, at least to any constant performance of it. And like a dog to his vomit, I returned and went on in the ways of sin. Indeed, I, I was at very times very uneasy, especially towards the latter part of my time in college, when it pleased God to seize me with a pleurisy in which he brought me nigh to the grave and shook me over the pit of hell. He got sick and stirred again his heart. He said, from my child up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing him he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time well when I seemed to be convinced and thus fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. He says, I remember that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since. It was on reading these words, 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, as I read these words, there came into my soul, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. And I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of scripture to myself, right, over and again, he was singing now to the king, immortal, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. He's kind of singing this song. Not, not, not to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Maybe he'd, he'd heard some sort of scripture memory song. Maybe he's got it. So he's just singing this song of 1 Timothy 1.17 over and over and over again. He said, I went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to, because this was the verse that changed him, with a new sort of affection. And from about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious ways of salvation by him. I had an inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was was led away in a pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. And there was Jonathan Edwards converted in a surprising way. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, in which Paul speaks about his own surprising conversion. And it then eventually led to Jonathan Edwards being one of the greatest theologians the world has ever known. And uh, we've lifted up this one work of surprising conversions. And just would pray that these stories we've told these last four weeks would have a, a great impact on our lives as we think about 
our own conversion, maybe our lack of conversion, and our hope in spreading the gospel to other people. So let's pray. Father, just would pray again for your help in, in our lives. Oh God, to, to realize that, that you convert in your time, in your way, apart from any program that we might try to put on or try to do or try to spin. God, if, if R.C. Sproul was converted by Ecclesiastes 11.3, God, you, you can convert by your means in any way. And, and I would pray, God, that like in the days of the Great Awakening, God, you would be among us and stir in our hearts and souls to think much upon eternal realities as those are the things that are important. And, and realize that you convert people from most surprising unexpected circumstances to become great warriors for you and those who live passionately for you and who spread your word in great, great ways, like the Apostle Paul was, the most unlikely ever to be converted. God, the enemy of the church becoming an advocate. And Father, I I pray you'd stir our hearts with with joy at his own testimony as we've gone through these testimonies. And and I pray also, God, just in the, the months in July, the weeks in July, just look forward to these men preaching God, bless them mightily. Bless us as a congregation. We hear from different voices, different men in the church. God, just opening your word, may your word become sweet to us during this month of July, even as we look ahead. God, we thank you. We love you. God, you are grace and you are hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.